On Friday afternoon, we sent out a request of a need for some help. And um, this is why it is such a privilege for Pastor John and I to pastor this church. Because between that email going out and within six hours of that email, I had six families who responded and said, Pastor, how can we help and what can we do? I appreciate this church so much and your willingness to step up and do what needs to be done to minister in some difficult situations. So from Pastor John and my heart this morning, I want to just say thank you, church, for your willingness to help and to be there when people have needs. It, uh, that's why we exist as a church. So thank you to those families who responded and are still responding. We really appreciate that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, our hearts are for you to do exactly what that song said, to reign in our hearts. Lord, you're the Lord of our life. You're the King. And so, Lord, our prayer should be to reign in every area of our heart, Father. Lord, thank you for this ministry and for these people, this church family who responds in such tremendous ways often to meet the needs of others, whether it's financially or physically or emotionally or spiritually. Lord, I thank you for a church that cares. I thank you for the privilege that we have to partner with Hope Within and what a phenomenal job they are doing here in the community. And Lord, we pray you continue to meet their needs, Father. Thank you for the Sturgises and the heart that you've given them to minister, Father. Whether people know you as their Savior, Father, or the lost, to try to reach them, Father, through helping to meet needs first. And we pray your continued blessings upon that ministry, that you would continue to meet their needs financially, and you'd continue to meet their needs for volunteers. Lord, I thank you for the different churches in this area that this morning are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to we pray, Father, we thank you for Pastor Lane over at Bick and, and Lord, just the heart that you've given him. Father, we, we thank you for LCBC, Lord, and the great job that they've done in, in spreading the gospel throughout Lancaster County and, and Dolphin County and York, Lord, and continue to bless that ministry. Father, we thank you for uh, E-Free over in Hershey, Lord, and the, and the great job that they're doing. And Lord, pray blessings upon that ministry. You would continue to use them to reach Hershey and the surrounding areas with the gospel. Lord, you have raised up so many great men and churches, Lord, to reach these, this area, Father, with your word. And I pray... Lord, that we would see a harvest of souls come to know you as their Savior. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as each of those pastors take the pulpit, that you would use them in a mighty way. And, Father, thank you for the privilege that Mount Calvary Church has to partner with them, Father, to, Lord, spread the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, as we deal with a very difficult and sensitive topic even to, Lord, 
many within our ministry here, you would use your word to speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to be true to what the word of God says. Lord, help us to preach it and help us to proclaim it with boldness, knowing that it comes from you. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us freedom to share today from your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Common common questions in Christianity is our series for the month of September. And Pastor John did our first message last week. And so today we pick up another topic. And that topic is what does the Bible teach about homosexuality. Homosexuality is one of the most controversial topics of our day, and we need to have clear biblical answers when it comes to speaking to this. Our society has changed drastically over the last 10 to 15 years in dealing with this. I've put there, and we're going to just do some time, some time this morning, sort of talking about the culture, and then we'll get into some scripture this morning. But I wanted to spend a little time just to give you some idea of where we are in our culture and how we got there. And society is changing. And uh, how does society change? And let me just give this to you this morning. Step one is from unthinkable to radical. If we went back 30 or 40 years ago... And we would talk about homosexuality uh, being law in our land. People would think, you're crazy. There is no way that will happen here in America. And people wouldn't even have thought of that. that was, it was radical. It was unthinkable. But the next step is that the radical becomes acceptable. And the radical thought has changed to becoming acceptable as it is people have become much more out of the closet and, and it's been picked up on the television and there's television shows just about this topic. And so it's become, and I believe through a lot through television, it's become acceptable. The next step is from acceptable to sensible. And when you begin, and we'll share some t- statistics here in just a moment, you know, again, years ago, this wasn't even sensible. We wouldn't even think of this, you know, well, you know, you go back to the I Love Lucy shows when I was growing up, and they slept in separate bedrooms. And so we have come a long way, haven't we, in, from, from those things. And so the acceptable will become sensible. And we begin to think in modern culture, modern society, that it's a sensible thing. The next step is from sensible to popular. Now, less than 4% of people in the United States are practicing homosexuals or or lesbians or cross-gender. But here's the thing. It has become popular, and I'm going to show you that in just a moment statistically. And then what happens is the last step is popular becomes policy. Popular becomes policy, and that's where we are today. We've moved, in 10 to 15 years, we've moved from step one to step five. November 2012, three states had legalized it, Maine, Maryland, and Washington. Those were the only three states that legalized it in 2012. Two years later now, 20 states and and the District of Columbia have now legalized it. Look where we've come in just two years. 
It's policy. In fact, this Monday, there was a court appeal started on Monday in the Ninth Circuit Court here in the United States, and if successful, it will legalize same-sex marriages in Idaho, Nevada, and Hawaii. That means three more states in the next month, probably, from what it looks like from this court case, will have legalized this. In our state, you know, May 20th of last year, the federal judge struck down the ban on same-sex marriages. The most recent Franklin Marshall College poll reinforces the results that we're seeing, showing support for gay, gay marriage among the Pennsylvanians to be growing with 54% in favor, up from 33% in 2006. 41% opposed, down from 60% in 2008. So you can see there is a change. There is a movement in our culture. There is a, a, a movement. Those that approve same-sex marriage, look at it by generation. Let's just take a minute and consider it by generation today. First of all, there's the silent generation. That's from 1928 to 1945. So if you fall in that category this morning, only 31% of your fellow people in that area believe that same-sex marriage is okay. The baby boomer, that's what I am, in 1946 to 1964, 38% today believe that same-sex marriage is all right. Generation X, 1965 to 1980, which I believe a lot of people are here at Mount Calvary Church, almost half, 49%, 49% of the Generation Xers believe that this is okay. And then the millennials, the 1980s to the 2000s, it goes up to 70% of people who fall in that age group believe that same-sex marriage is fine. It's a big issue, isn't it? It's a big issue. Remember back in May 2012 when the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, came out for same-sex marriage and what a, what a ruckus it caused in the Democratic Party and in the White House? Remember that? I mean, it seemed like at that time President Obama was pretty upset. In fact, as you read, some will say that they made Joe Biden come in and apologize to, to President Obama. Others say Joe Biden has never apologized for anything in his life, so why would you think he would apologize for that? And I could talk about him because he's from the great state of Delaware where I grew up. But it's true. I, I don't know if he ever apologized or, or not, but there was certainly a big ruckus because at that time the President of the United States supposedly was against same-sex marriage but you know where he stands on that today. He's 100% behind it. An illustration for you that, just to show you again how relevant, um, it was love, love. This is what the article said from Martina Navratilova and Russian model Julia Limgova during Saturday's U.S. Open. This was just from last Saturday. The 57-year-old tennis legend proposed to her longtime partner while providing commentary for the day, the, um, that day's semifinals. According to People magazine, Navratilova was in the midst of a Tennis Channel interview when she declared that 
um, she would now be providing the, uh, the request. She turned to Limgova, got down on one knee, and popped the question, which Limgova tearily accepted. That moment uh, was broadcast on the big screen at Arthur Ashe Stadium for everybody to see. Why? Because pretty much it's accepted by our society. Our culture is changing. Two words have been radically redefined in our culture that has allowed this to happen. I want to mention those two words this morning to you. The first is tolerance. That word has changed in our society. See, here's what tolerance used to mean. It used to mean this. A recognition and respect for other viewpoints with which you disagree. In other words, it meant that, you know what, I could disagree with you and we could respect each other's position. Because I respect you as a human being. I might not agree with you, but I can respect you and we can have a civil conversation about these issues. But let me tell you, the redefinition, the, the redefining that word, the new meaning is this. It's accepting a position to be true or at least equally true as your own position. That's what it means today. It means accepting a position to be true, at least as equally true as your position. So it means that, listen, I in our society today have to accept same-sex marriage as true. That's what your culture is telling you. That's what your television programs, that's what your movies, that's what we're being told today and when we talk about this word of tolerance, you hear it preached all the time. Just watch the news channels and you hear that word thrown around all the time. And what it means is that I can't just respect your opinion anymore. I have to, I have to agree with your opinion that it's true, that it's okay, that it's acceptable. The other one is hate. The definition of hate, speech. Let me give it to you. Here it is. Any speech, gesture, or conduct, writing or display, which for, is forbidden because it may incite violence of prejudicial action against or by a protected individual or group because it disparages or intimidates a protected individual or group. Now, let me, let me bring this to you this morning. Because this is becoming public policy, because... It has now been accepted in 20 states, 23 states pretty soon, for me as a pastor, a preacher of the gospel, one who proclaims this word and who stands on everything I say based on what this word says, not what the United States government says, I believe for pastors this in the future will be the thing that ends up here in America putting pastors in prison. It's happening all around the world already. And so this is a big issue we're dealing with this morning. This is a very controversial issue. So according to this definition of hate, some might even say, you know, you're going to be espousing hate speech this morning as you proclaim what God's word says. You know, when we deal with this topic, I really believe 
this topic probably, and I know it has, affects many people here within our ministry. It's, it affects people within your families. And so your heart breaks, it weeps at times over this. While I preach this message this morning, my cousin, Laura, who is a practicing lesbian, will, is on her honeymoon in Alaska with her significant other. Two weeks ago, her and her significant other were married out in San Francisco where they live. She is a well-respected um, head of the HR of a huge hospital in San Francisco. And her, her partner is head of the psychology department there at that same hospital. I just spent some time on vacation. Two years ago, we hadn't, we hadn't seen each other in 25 years. And my aunt moved here to this area, her, her, her mom. And uh, so she flew in to see her mom. And her mom said, would you eat lunch with Laura? I said, yeah, sure, why not? She's my cousin. And she says, but you, you, you know about her lifestyle. I said, that doesn't matter. And so that day, my aunt drove her up here. And we had about a two-hour lunch at Rockwell's. And we sat and talked. And I asked her about her job. I asked her about her, her significant other. And, and we talked through those things. Um, I asked her, would she mind if I prayed over the meal? And she said, no. And I said, I'd like to pray for you too. And she said, that's fine. And so we've continued to build this relationship. She'll be back in town next week to celebrate my aunt's 80th birthday. And this is my aunt's prayer. My aunt's prayer is that through her, through my aunt who knows Jesus Christ, attends Westminster Presbyterian Church, and myself that will be able to speak into my cousin's life and to be able to see her come to Jesus Christ. Is that a possibility? It is. Let me tell you a neat story that I just heard last night. We were down in New Jersey, and my, my son-in-law, Asa, was sharing about his boss, who he works with. Um, he didn't know when she took the job two years ago, but he found out that she was a practicing lesbian. And uh, about a month later, after he found that out, she said, I'm also a Christian, which opened up some tremendous conversations that Asa was able to speak into her life and to talk with her. And uh, her and her partner of two years, they've been, they've been married for two years, married in, in Delaware. Um, they came to the point where they said, you know what, we're always probably going to wrestle with these feelings, these attractions. But these feelings, these attractions that we're acting on are against the word of God. And a month ago, they decided that they would break that physical relationship. Now, they still live in the same place. They're trying to learn, how are we going to work this? How are we going to be able to reach the others who are within our community without offending them? How are we going to be able to do that? But they came to the point by going to church week after week, sitting under the preaching of God's word, that this was not biblically right. Can God change people's lives? He can. He can. So what does the Bible say? 
What does the Bible say? And, and, and there's no way at all I'm going to be able to, co to cover all of the arguments today, even though that I have a little bit longer to preach than normal this morning. There's no way I'm going to be able to do all that. Uh, at the end, I'll share with you some materials and a, a website you can go to and download some, some things about this if you want to continue to think through this. But first of all, let me say this. And so the first argument is simply this, is the Bible is a heterosexual book. The Bible is a heterosexual book. Now, the gay Christian, we're going to say that, and we're going to put that in parentheses this morning, the gay Christian argument to that is simply this. Although many Christians put a great emphasis on the sinfulness of homosexuality, there is only a handful of passages, only a handful of passages that touch on the subject at all, which means it was hardly that important to the biblical authors. That's what the gay community, that's their argument. These couple arguments that we're going to share, these are what are brought up often as you get on blogs and you read, or if you would go to an open debate about this, and, and, and especially those who claim to be uh, Christian and gay at the same time. And let me just give you the biblical response, and then we're going to dive into it. Actually, it is because the Bible explicitly states that heterosexuality is God's intended norm for the human race and the only form of human, the only form of union acceptable to God in marriage, that the biblical authors did not say more about homosexual practices. The little they said was more than enough to give the fact that the Bible from the beginning to end is a heterosexual book. Now, when we, when we deal with those who claim to be, again, gay Christians, they're often going to talk to you about what we call the clobber passages of Scripture. The clobber passages. They say, oh, these are, the, these are the portions of Scripture that you pull and that you clobber us with all the time. And so this morning, I wanted to take a little bit of time and deal with these clobber passages. So if you have your Bibles, take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to the very first one, Genesis chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 of Genesis chapter 19. This is the first clobber passage that they will say that we, as those who stand on the Word of God and believe it's the inerrant Word of God without mistake, this is the passage that they say that we use to clobber them over the head with. So let's read this, Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth, verse 2, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last, uh, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. 
Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with him and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they were themselves out groping for the door. Now we have certainly been to this portion of scripture. I'm sure if you've been here, you've been in Sunday school, you've read this portion before. And uh, we know what happens eventually to the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that they are destroyed by God. We know that Lot's wife looks back and she's destroyed by God. So why were they destroyed by God? Why did this happen? And um, here's the argument. If you will listen and you will read, here's the argument that a gay Christian will give you. They say, well, let me tell you what this scripture is really saying. First of all, they're going to tell you as you read on that the Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, not because of homosexuality, but Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed because they did not show hospitality. That is literally the argument that they say, that it was destroyed because they did not show hospitality to these men. Or another argument they'll say is they, they were destroyed because of attempted rape. Or they will say they were destroyed because of their pride and their arrogance and their excess. And surely, when you study this town of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a town of excess excess food, excess everything, and excess sex. The whole town, when you study and you go back and you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, those towns were known not only for homosexuality, but they were known for sex outside of marriage, bestiality, all kinds of ungodly, thinkable things were found in these cities. But apart from that, it is very evident in this portion of scripture and even as you go back and you do some research the one of the biggest things that Sodom and Gomorrah were known for was the homosexuality of the town and so that's the reason it was destroyed but they say no no it was because of their pride it was because of you know uh, rape it was because of other things or their lack of hospitality. Another clobber scripture that is used, they say, is Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 30. So we'll put, the, we'll put them up here on the screen again this morning. You can look at them. Leviticus 18, 22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. 
their blood is upon them. Once again, when you go back and you read all the material and you read the books that have been written by those who uh, would espouse that you can uh, that get a Christ, uh, the, the, um, living that lifestyle is fine, they're going to come back and tell you these portion of Scripture really is not talking about homosexuality. It is talking about idolatry. And so they say that this Scripture... Uh, is talking about idolatry, that it, it, there was nothing wrong with lying with a male or, you know, as with a woman. It, it's basically talking about you shouldn't be worshiping that person. Um, so it's talking about idolatry. They also say that this is dealing with the Jewish holiness code. This is the ceremonial code of the Jewish people. So because it's dealing with the Jewish ceremonial code and Jewish law, it has nothing to do with us today. This was just written for even the time of the Jews, has nothing to do with our culture and our society today. That's what they're going to tell you. That's what's in the books that they've written. Another portion is Romans chapter 1, another clobber scripture as we move into the New Testament. It says, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 28. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their woman exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so this is talking about those that God, in a sense, turns over to a reprobate mind where they come to that point where they don't even want to attain God in their thought as you continue to look at that scripture and you begin to realize that this portion of scripture is dealing with homosexuality. Um, and this... Again, they've said that this portion of Scripture deals with idolatry. It's not dealing with homosexuality. Um, and he said, the other thing they say is that real sin is changing what is natural to individuals. So they take this portion of Scripture and they say, listen, here's the sin. It's when you change what is natural. So if a person is naturally has homosexual tendencies and you want them to change that, then that becomes a sin. So for us to say, listen, you can't do this because God's word says they're going to come back and say, you know what? You're asking me to change to something that I'm not. And so you're causing me to sin. That's the argument that they come back with. Now, we don't have the time to go there. You know, is it nurture or is it nature? And, and I'm going to tell you that it's much more than nurture and nature. I'm going to tell you it's much more than that. We don't have time to even get into that argument. I do believe that when we're born, we're born with a propensity to sin. All of us. I would hate to espouse to you today my propensities to sin because you might fire me as your pastor. It's the reality of it, folks. But the reality is all of us are born with a propensity to sin. That is our sinful nature. Now, I believe when we talk about the word nurture, we can nurture our sinful nature or we can nurture our spiritual. The light that God, you know, it talks in Romans chapter 1 that in man, that God has put, in a sense, even within man, God has put the, what? 
the ability to know right from wrong. It says that in Scripture, so God has put that. So you know what? I can nurture the ability, or I can nurture to do what is right, or I can nurture to do what is wrong. That whole thing of nurturing the sinful nature, even after I'm saved, Listen, I still have this sinful nature that I'm dealing with. I still have this flesh, and I can nurture that flesh, and it can cause me to do things that are unreal and would be not even speakable. But the Bible is full of illustrations of that. I believe David, a man after God's own heart, what did he do? He committed adultery. He committed murder. The sin of pride ended up thousands and thousands of people losing their life because of his pride. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because at times, David nurtured his flesh. And so this morning, you can nurture your flesh. And so it's a a lot bigger issue of just nurture nature. Bigger, much bigger than that. I think this scripture is clear, and especially, you know, we just take those two verses out of context, you know, but you read that whole context of Romans and there's no way that you can come up with any other translate, any other uh, interpretation of this portion of Scripture. There's two others. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 10 through, uh, 9 and 10. Again, these, these are called the clobber passages that the, the Christian gay community says that we clobber them with. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me read 1 Timothy, and then we'll come back and just make a a short statement about both of these. 1 Timothy 9.10 Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, the sexual and moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, here is the argument. The argument comes back theologically to the word that Paul uses for homosexuality here. It, 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 that word is the word that they begin to debate you with. And uh, ariskinoid is the word in the Greek, and uh, they say that that word never existed in the Greek, and that was a made-up word for Paul. That Paul made that, that, that shouldn't even appear in here because Paul made this Greek word up himself and placed it here. Now, that's what they're going to tell you, but that's not true because when you go back and you look at the writings of those times, you will find that word. Literally, the word means men who bed with men. It's literally what the word means, men who bed with men. And it's the same root word that um, our government uses to explain homosexuality, which is interesting. So here's the thing. They claim that the verses have been mis translated, misinterpreted, misused, and so. In reality, the scriptures don't prohibit um, monogamous, committed homosexual relationships. Also, they say there's uh, evolutionary theology within the Bible. Now, this is an argument that you hear all the time. An evolutionary theology uh, 
uh, in the Bible, that the Bible progresses. It's progressive revelation, they call it. And it doesn't mean the same thing progressive revelation means for us, okay? I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, the Bible has moved from a judgment and punishment in the distant past through all time towards forgiveness and all-encompassing love for everything. So what they want to tell you is in the Old Testament, you know, the Bible was nothing but judgment and, and nothing but, you know, God's judgment. But in the New Testament, it is nothing but love. And so it's all inclusive and everybody's to be loved. But I'm going to argue with you that their whole premises is wrong because the Old Testament is just as loving a book as the New Testament. Because if it was just a book of judgment, David would be in hell, wouldn't he? But God, the whole Bible is about the grace of God. It is about the grace of God. There's just as much love in the Old Testament as there's justice in the New Testament. There's just as much judgment in the New Testament as there is in the Old Testament, too. Just get into the book of Revelation. You want to find judgment. It's there. See, these arguments have become standard fare among those who advocating for the acceptance of homosexuality, and they're trotted out in almost every public debate. But the arguments fail for two reasons. Let me give them to you. Here they are. First, the arguments are, not, are just not faithful to the text involved, which clearly condemns same-sex behavior. Secondly, the arguments are based on the absurd claim that the church has misunderstood these texts for centuries, only to be corrected by revisionist scholars in recent decades. That in the 2,000 years of the church, we've got it wrong until about the last 20 years when some revisionists have come along and said, hey, for 2,000 years, you guys have got it all wrong, and we're going to straighten you out finally. That's what they're saying. See, they also point to the fact that the Bible has more than 31,000 total verses and that 25 talk about homosexuality. So let me give you an illustration to that. I read, that this, I read this illustration this week. I thought it was a pretty good illustration. Let's say you buy a cookbook featuring healthy dessert recipes, none of which use sugar. You could say, why, is there, why should we eat them then, right? In the, introduction, in the introduction of the book, the author explains her reason for avoiding sugar products, telling that you'll find sumptuous sweet dessert recipes, but all without sugar. And so, throughout the rest of the book, the word sugar is not found in a single time, not once. Would it be right to conclude that avoiding sugar was not important to the author? To the contrary, it was so important that every single recipe in the book makes no mention of sugar. Because what? She stated at the beginning of the book that this is a cookbook about what? Recipes with no sugar. And, you know, it's exactly the same with the Bible and homosexuality. There are, very, there are few very strong and very clear references to homosexual practices, every one of them decidedly negative, and then not a single reference to homosexual practices basically throughout the rest of the Bible. Was it because avoiding homosexual practice was not important to the authors of Scripture? To the contrary, the only relationships that were acceptable in God's sight or considered normal for society were heterosexual relationships. When you read God's Word, it's a heterosexual book. 
Let me give you some examples. Every single reference to marriage in the entire Bible speaks of a heterosexual union without exception to the point that a Hebrew idiom for marriage is for a man to what? Take a wife. Every warning to man about sexual purity proposes heterosexuality with which the married man often warned not to lust after another woman. Every discussion about family order and structure speaks explicitly to heterosexual terms referring to husband and wives, fathers and mothers. Every law or instruction given to children presupposes heterosexuality as children are urged to heed or obey or follow the counsel or example of their fathers and mothers. Every parable, illustration, or metaphor having to do with marriage is presented exclusively heterosexual terms. In the Old Testament, God depicts his relationship with Israel as that of a groom and a bride. In the New Testament, the image shifts to the marriage, marriage union of a husband and wife as a picture of Christ and his church. Since there um, was not such a thing as vitro fertilization and the like in biblical times, the only parents were heterosexual. It still takes a man and woman to produce a child. There's not even a hint in the Bible of a homosexual couple adopting. Number two, what did Jesus say about homosexuality? The gay Christian argument, while Jesus spoke against divorce and adultery, he never said a word about homosexual practices. Although in his teaching about eunuchs, he indicated that some people are born gay and, shouldn't be fully accept and should be fully accepted by the church without being expected to change. Here's the biblical response. It's dangerous to use an argument from silence, but in reality, Jesus reaffirmed and depends, uh, deepened the sexual morals of the law. He stated that all sexual acts outside of marriage defile us, and he stated emphatically that marriage as God intended referred to the lifelong union of one man and one woman. As for the eunuchs by birth or choice or by the actions of others, he was referring to those who refrained from sexual activity in marriage for who were unable to engage in sexual activity. See, Jesus never talked about bestiality, did he? So do we say because he didn't talk about bestiality that that certainly must be okay because he never mentioned it? See, what did Jesus do? He, he, he reiterated what was already in Scripture. On several occasions, Jesus took us back. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Have you not read that, that he who created them from the beginning made the male and the female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father or mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God had joined together, let no man put asunder. That's what Jesus did. He, he didn't need to deal with these things. And I'll tell you another reason. He didn't need to deal with it. Because when you go back and you study Jewish culture from Jesus' time, homosexuality was not accepted at all by that culture. It was not accepted at all, period, by that culture. You know, even apart from, from Jesus, even apart from that, it was not. The writings, all the Jewish writings talk negatively about homosexuality 
in the time of Jesus. So, I mean, it was already a given, it was already a given, you know, to the Jewish culture. So why did Jesus need to spend a lot of time there anyway? He just needed to go back and reiterate what, he, what the Bible already said from the beginning because the Bible is a heterosexual book. I like this argument I read this week. It'd be like arguing it's clear that President Reagan thought Martians were not a real threat to America since he never mentioned Martians once. But he did talk a whole lot about the Soviet Union. That's true in part, but the reason Reagan never spoke about Martians was because he didn't believe in Martians, and so invasion from Mars was not a threat. The real threat was coming from the Soviet Union, and that's where he put his emphasis. So it would be ludicrous to say Ronald Reagan thought Martians were friendly. The same way with Jesus and homosexual practices, he didn't have to condemn it any, any more than he had to condemn sins like bestiality, since every God-fearing Jew in the nation knew these things were wrong according to God's holy Torah. In contrast, the issue of divorce, specifically the question of what constituted valid grounds for divorce, which we're going to deal, deal with in two weeks, was a hot issue among the Yeshia Jewish contemporaries of Jesus' time. See, divorce was a hot issue during Jesus' time. That's why he dealt with it. Homosexuality was a dead issue during Jesus' time. That's why he didn't deal with it. We can't cover everything. I want to include just before I go to this last part to see what should be our response. I have put out, there's probably 20 of these out in the article, out in the foyer there. Uh, these are published. It's called Thriving Values by Focus on the Family. This one says, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? You're welcome to pick one of these up that are printed out there. If we run out, you can go to Focus on the Family's website. You can download this and print it yourself. If you don't have a computer and they run out, if you'll call the office and say, I didn't get one, can you print me one? We'll be glad to do that, okay? Let me give you what our response should be to this this morning. And I'm going to close... And thank you for your listening this morning. This has been a little bit longer, but this is a huge topic. So what, 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 what should be our responsibility? Here they are real quick. First of all, be careful about targeting less common categories of sin while ignoring more popular forms of sin. Again, only 4% of Americans practice cross-gender relationships. But do you know they say that 38 to 45 percent and sometimes even higher of Americans practice sex outside of marriage, whether it's before marriage or during marriage, but sex outside of marriage. And do we make a big deal about that? How about overeating? That's destroying the temple, isn't it? Do we make a big deal about that? Next, don't expect people who don't follow Christ to obey him. I guess I struggle a little bit more with those who maybe say they're Christians and claim to be homosexuals, but the same at the same time, let me tell you, every one of us, and we'll talk about this in a minute, struggle with sin. But listen, when somebody doesn't proclaim to know Jesus Christ, they don't want anything to do with Christ, it does not surprise me what they do. I'm never surprised what's on the 6 o'clock news or 6.30 news at night. ISIS doesn't surprise me. 
Nothing surprises me, because why? Because these are people who don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They are feeding their, their sinful nature and continuing down that. Don't expect people who don't follow Christ to obey him. Number three, remember it's more important to make a difference than a point. You know, the very first time I sat down and had a meal with my cousin Laura, after 25 years, I could have said, what's wrong with you? Come on, Laura, your family, your family knows. This is not our family. What's wrong with you? Come on, straighten up. Get out of this relationship. But you know what? It's more important that I make a difference than a point. And so maybe if you have someone in your family like that who's practicing, you know what? It's more important that you make a difference and you show them the love of Christ than to have to make a point every time. Next, don't fear sharing what you believe, but show the basics for it, preferably from the Bible, from cultural and logically. You know, we, we laughed about it this week, Pastor John and I did, because he said, well, you're not going to use that argument that it wasn't Adam and Eve, you know, or it wasn't Adam and Steve in the Bible, wasn't. Don't use that. That's ridiculous. It's just so stupid. You know, come on. Let's, let's take the Scripture and say what Scripture says. From, from the Bible, from culture, from, lobby, from, from logic. Next one. Treat those with whom you disagree with respect. I'll tell you what. A Baptist church from Oklahoma who holds those signs, fags, and gays and goes to our men who have died with honor for this country, that is not the way God wants us to act. It's not. We need to show respect. Quit thinking you won't be persecuted and suffer because of your beliefs. You know, we, I think we bought into this in America because we don't have to suffer, you know, for our beliefs. But, you know, we need, I think there's, there's going to come a time when we're going to suffer for what we believe. And I think it's really going to bring America to see who's really following Christ. And then, he who is without sin... Cast the first stone. You know, let me just say this to you this morning. You know, we, we talked about the clobber passages of Scripture. Do you know that word clobber? You know where it actually came from? It came, wasn't even a word that was used until World War II. And it was about how Americans were bombing, and they said we were clobbering. And so the word literally came out of World War II, and we were bombing and clobbering with our bombs. I don't think we need to clobber people with Scripture. I think we need to show them what it says, and then we need to allow God to work on their heart. And as, we, as I gave you that illustration of that couple, those two ladies from my, my son-in-law's work, he, God can do that, and he is doing it. But, but here's the thing. The reality and I say this, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Really, when we show up here on Sunday morning, every one of us need to be clobbered with God's word. 
I read God's word during the week to be clobbered because this sinful nature so quickly goes its own way. And so I need the word of God to clobber me. I need it when I read it to say, man, come on, Dick, get those things right. Don't think those thoughts. Don't go those places. Don't treat people like that. Don't, 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 don't think you're somebody when you're not. I need God's word to clobber me. I do. And so when you come to church, I hope you, in a sense, come and say, preacher, clobber me. I need it. And so it's just not people who are struggling with homosexuality, but it's people who are struggling to stay straight, as, uh, to, to have right relationships heterosexually. It's, it's not being critical. It's not, and you name it, you know, it's not overeating. We all need to be clobbered about so many different things that this sinful nature struggles with. And so you who are without sin cast the first stone. Is what Christ said. Remember that illustration? We've been called to love the sinner, not the sin. We should hate the sin, but we should love the sinner. You know what that means? That deals with every person in this auditorium because we are all sinners saved by grace. See, we are Christians who sin. Paul said, What? I am the greatest. I am the chief of sinners. So unless we look at these and say, wow, you know, and we forget to look at ourselves, let's pray. Father, I know there are many in this auditorium today who have family, who have friends that have been touched by this issue. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the boldness to proclaim what God's word says. And yet at the same time, to show love. Lord, because all of us, no matter what the sin is, Lord, we need, first of all, your love. And your love often is expressed through others. Lord, help us to be strong when God's word is strong, but help us to be like God who is strong, but yet shows tremendous love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.